in charge of the Shelby County Rural Water. He knows. Come to coffee time. When we have coffee time on Tuesdays, you'll hear about it, about what's going on in the world of water, things that we take for granted were, were things that they didn't take for granted back in the day of Isaiah. Back in his day, you either went to a local well or river and you got your day's worth of water all by yourself, however many trips it took. How much water do you think they wasted? They tried really hard to not waste water. I mean, unless you were really wealthy and you could afford to hire servants to go get it for you, then you'd use water for whatever you wanted. But daily showers, I don't think so. <laughs> no. But the prophetic offer of this verse is that of lavish abundance. Come, everyone who thirsts. That earlier we sang a song, O Come All You Unfaithful. I asked Pastor Dan specifically to have us sing that song um, for, the, for this very reason. God's invitation has never been fix yourself, clean yourself up, make yourself right. God's invitation is always to the broken. Always to the ones who's, who need it. And this verse says, come everyone who thirsts. By the way, who is it that needs water? Everyone, right? Everyone needs water. Who needs water? Everyone. If there is no water, there is no life. Everyone needs water. And God supplies. So, so the invitation is come thirsty and become satisfied. Come hungry become filled. God invites the broken, pictured here as the thirsty. Not so that they could stay that way, but so they can be changed. But notice this offer, it, it, it's far more than water. It's come all who thirst, come to the waters, and without money, without price, come and, and take what you want. Do you see the verse says, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The offer is not just for water, but for the finest and most costly as well. And as we get, go further into the passage, we see that the invitation is actually to a banquet, to feast on fine foods. Wine and milk represent a bounty. Water is the necessity. You have to have water just to get by. But God's offer is for far more than just what it takes to get by. I love the cost here. It says, without money and without price. Whatever happened to, if it sounds too good to be true, it is? Well, generally speaking, it is. If someone calls you and is offering you something that doesn't sound like it should be right, it's probably not right. You see an ad on the internet that says, uh, just put in your name and address and you'll get a free car. It's probably not true. But we're not talking about charlatans, we're talking about our Savior here. When God offers you something that sounds too good to be true, you can trust him because he's trustworthy. 
So how can someone make such an abundant offer? The reason we know that those, uh, those ads for, uh, for a free car or for um, send the prince $37 and you'll receive a million dollars back, all those things are scams and we know why. It's because there isn't enough supply for that person to provide for everyone who might want to take advantage of it. The only, way, the only way that someone can make such an incredible offer as God is making in this passage is if he has an incredible supply. And because we're talking about God, his supply is always infinite. The one making this offer, the one in capital letters, the one, the one making this offer has so much available that he is not even in the least bit concerned about not being able to make good on his offer. Come, all who thirst. We see the supply is endless. We see in verse two, the satisfaction that comes from it. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? and Your labor on that which does not satisfy. Another way of putting this is why do you spend yourself on that which doesn't satisfy? Why do you invest your time, your energy, your efforts into things that aren't going to satisfy you? The great contemporary philosopher Jim Carrey, who you might know as the Grinch, is quoted as saying these words, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. He knows. Now, I don't don't know if he realizes that he's alluding to the Bible. Now, he, he may be a believer, I don't know. I don't know him well enough, but I know what scripture says. Book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's much longer way of saying the same thing. Go ahead, try it, but you're going to find that what you're pursuing, if it's not God, is going to leave you feeling empty. Here's Ecclesiastes 1.14. The Bible says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon had seen it all. He had observed the human condition, so that third-party observation, but he also had the resources and the status to have a first-person experience of so many things, of wealth. And he said it's, it's useless. Of women. So many women. He had wisdom. All of these didn't satisfy. There are even some non-W things that don't satisfy. He had respect. Queen of Sheba honored Solomon, absolutely respected him. He had power. He had experienced and seen youthfulness. He had the resources to keep himself as youthful as one can keep themselves. He had experienced Lots of great results. The kingdom was prosperous under his reign. It was peaceful under his reign. The the kingdom was wealthy in resources. He was able to build palaces for himself. He was able to build uh, the 
the temple for the Lord, uh, all these things that, were, that he was able to do, the money that many kingdoms spend on war, he was able to spend on just building things because life was so good under his reign. And here's how Solomon summarized all of it. He says, none of it satisfies. The last two verses of Ecclesiastes say this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The one who had seen it all, the one who had lived all the things that, all the the good things that we might strive for in this world, he lived it. He said, all of that's, Vanity, worthless, all of it is nothing compared to just living for the Lord. So it shouldn't surprise us when Solomon, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records all of this for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. It shouldn't surprise us when contemporary people can come to the same conclusion because they've lived it. Jim Carrey is one. Warren Buffett's another. The man is insanely wealthy. And he lives in a fairly modest house that he's owned for the last 50, 60 years or whatever. When he could buy whatever mansion on the planet that he wanted. But that doesn't satisfy. Isaiah 55 verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Bread is that picture of that which really does satisfy. And why do you spend your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That's that banquet. God wants us to find our satisfaction in him. But our natural tendency is to seek our satisfaction in whatever happens to captivate our imagination in the moment. So because so much of our time is, uh, so, much, so much time of our lives, such a great percentage of our lives is spent in our vocation, we tend to find satisfaction in our job. Work from home, stay-at-home parents are not exempt from this temptation either. Investing into your, into your household, investing into your children. Parents can lose themselves in doing all that. And, f- and if, they're, if they're finding their joy and satisfaction in their children and their children's activities, if they're living vicariously through, uh, through the successes and growths of, grow, growing of their children, they're going to soon be very disappointed because those children are going to grow up. And that relationship is going to profoundly change. Students, are you finding your satisfaction in your friends or in the realms of social media where likes and shares are currency. No matter where you find your peace, your joy, your zen, if it is not found in God himself, you will continually find yourself disappointed over and over and over and over and over again. So the question is, how are you investing your life? Are you, as verse 2 says, are you laboring for that which does not satisfy? Let 
And you may say, well, pastor, my job doesn't really satisfy me, but it's a means to an end. So yes, I'm laboring for that which doesn't satisfy. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about where is your focus? Where's your pursuit? There are all sorts of activities of life that aren't supposed to satisfy us. They weren't designed to. And if we put that burden on it, it'd be like taking a cement truck and driving over a pedestrian bridge. It's not designed for it. It's going to break. Our satisfaction can't be found in anything other than God. Because everything else will not satisfy. Everything else will fail. See, God wants to remove these things from our lives. They're called idols, by the way. When we put on our job, our vocation, put on our family, put on our relationships, put on our friendships, put it, fill in the blank. When we put on the, these things, the weight that is required to make us genuinely satisfied, it will fail. It's an idol that God wants to remove from our lives. And by the way, when God does remove idols from our lives, it hurts. Because we put our affections, we put our love in the wrong place. By the way, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are his child, he will remove those idols. Now he's patient, he sometimes takes a long time to do it. But he will remove those idols. I know we've only gotten through a couple verses, I'll keep moving. We've seen the supply, it's endless. We've seen the satisfaction that comes from God and it is secure, it's guaranteed, verse three. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, on the surface, it kind of looks like Isaiah's changing subjects a little bit. I mean, what's, what's this about the covenant? What's about, why David? What's going on here? Well, Isaiah is not making a change of subject here, but he is making clear that the abundant supply from verse one and the satisfaction in verse two are not just about physical nourishment, okay? So if it wasn't clear in the first two verses, he makes it clear here that this is a metaphor. This is pointing to something even greater than an endless supply of water and food. Isaiah is talking about the life of the soul, talking about that eternal you. He's speaking to the spiritual bounty found only from our eternal provider. The, the book of Isaiah continually points to the brokenness of the world, the sinfulness of God's people uh, as, as was happening in his day, uh, and the desire for life to be right, that shalom that we've been talking about. And Isaiah talks about the special one who would fix everything. That's where this comes in. This covenant, this unbreakable promise that God makes with us is actually made through the covenant God made with David. So he says here in verse three, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And then he talks about his covenant with David. So the way he makes that covenant with us is through the covenant that he already made with David. Well, what is the covenant with David? That covenant, well, back up, who's David? David was a king of Israel. He was the second king. The first king was Saul. Israel, as a united kingdom, had only three kings. Each of them uh, reigned for 40 years. Saul was 40 years. He was the first. He had, ev- he had everything that the people of Israel wanted in a king. 
he was tall. People of Israel were not really smart. Okay? All they wanted was a leader like the other nations. They didn't want God to be their king. They wanted a physical leader, and Saul looked the part. He was tall. If tall is a virtue, then he was virtuous. But very little of what is recorded in Scripture of King Saul was actually virtuous or morally good by any standard. Saul did what he wanted more than he ever did what God wanted, and the nation of Israel paid for it. The second king was David. And of the three kings of the full kingdom, which were Saul, David, and then Solomon, of the three kings, um, David was the one who loved God and desired to follow God the most. He did it imperfectly. Oh, he did it imperfectly. But scripture records David as being a man after God's own heart. So yes, his focus was on God. It wasn't always. He was sometimes distracted. But God's summary of him is that he was a man after God's own heart. So God promised David. He made a covenant with David saying that God would keep a descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem for all eternity. Jesus is that direct descendant. The covenant to David pointed directly to Jesus. And in Jesus, God makes his covenant with us. The Gospel of Matthew traces the lineage from David. So the generations from David to Jesus by way of Joseph's family. And the Gospel of Luke does the exact same for Mary. All pointed to the fact that however you trace the heritage of Jesus whether through his adoptive father or through his biological mother, you go back far enough and you get to David because God keeps his promises. And his promise was that there would be a king through David's line forever. So while it is true that for over 2,000 years there has not been a king on the throne in Jerusalem, when we're talking about eternity, what's a couple thousand years here or there? Right, you just round up because it becomes nothing because eternity is eternity. All that to say that verse 3 demonstrates that God's unbreakable promise to David is resulting in an unbreakable promise to you. Scripture records how much God loves David, how much David loved God, and that same love that God had for David, making him an eternal promise, one that cannot be broken because God made this promise, God made this covenant. It wasn't dependent on David personally. God said, I'm going to do this. Because his promise to David is sure, his promise to us is sure as well. Verse 4, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. David was a picture and a foretaste of the kingdom and reign of Christ. David was a witness, a leader, but imperfect in so many ways. But Jesus, the Messiah, will be the perfect leader. Righteous and just in every way. Generous and kind. Always good. Jesus already came as the perfect witness. And when he comes again... He will reign as king. So the Messiah as the sovereign ruler of the world is exactly the peace, the shalom that we inherently long for. 
inherently. We, we have this cavity in our hearts that is longing for something, and the answer is Jesus. By the way, Jesus coming as our one sovereign ruler is the greatest form of government there could be. Some would say that democracy is the greatest government, but none of us actually wants to live in a real pure democracy because a real pure democracy would mean all people have a say on all decisions. That would be horrible. We don't actually want that. We live in a constitutional republic comprised of states who have joined together with one agreed upon constitution we have representatives, we have the presidents, we have the judiciary. John Adams, who lived long before any of us, John Adams said this, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And though our form of government may be the best that the world has been able to produce, it is still quite insufficient, is it not? But the best form of government that could ever possibly be is actually that of a benevolent dictator. Emphasis on benevolent. Dictators get a really bad rap, and rightfully so, right? Because they abuse their power. They abuse the people under them. They, they hoard all the wealth while the, the common people uh, go without. Dictators are inherently corrupt and selfish and bring about suffering, but a benevolent dictator, one who loves his people, one who would personally sacrifice for his people. That's the best form of government. Jesus will reign as that benevolent dictator. But not only will he rule in righteousness, he also has the eternal capacity to provide for every need that we have. No dictator in history, no matter how nice, no matter how moral, no matter how upright and good, no dictator in history could ever provide everything that their people needed. Ours can. Ultimately, this is the shalom, the peace that we want. To be led by one who knows all things he knows how every decision will play out. I can make a decision and not, then there, there can be all sorts of sub-consequences that I didn't see coming and then I regret that decision later. Jesus never has that. He knows everything. He always chooses what is right. It's what we long for, to be led by someone who knows all things, to be led by someone who has power over all things. There will be no natural disaster, no invading force, no disease, nothing that can bring about sorrow, pain, or suffering because our benevolent dictator, Jesus Christ, takes care of it all. The good news is that such a leader has been promised and when he returns, when he comes that second time, he will be instated as that leader. But the news is even better. Because remember, this is Isaiah. This is written to the people of Israel. The news gets better, verse 5. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. What we see here is God is making that call beyond the borders of Israel to all nations, all people groups. It means his call is to us. Come, all who thirst, 
No longer is that call confined to God's chosen people, the people of Israel. But it's an invitation to all peoples. And and what we see here is equal treatment to Gentile believers. There are no second-class people. We're all invited to the same banquet. In the Old Testament law, foreigners, people from another nation, were able to join the nation of Israel. They were able to become integrated with the people of Israel um, by you know, submitting to the law of God, by participating in obedience to the law of God. They could join the nation of Israel. But there was never a wide-reaching invitation for people to come. Hey, all nations of the world, come. Be, be part of God's people. It wasn't there. It's not there. Search scriptures. It's not there. But Isaiah foretells this change. It didn't actually take place until the church age, but he foretold it here in Isaiah 55. The good news that Jesus is the Messiah and that the sacrifice of his own body was the payment for the sins of the whole world radically changed everything. Now next week we're going to continue with the next few verses in this chapter and talk more about God's general call of salvation. But for today, God wants us to find our satisfaction in him. So I ask you, what are you pursuing? What is it that makes you believe that you will feel at peace, believe that you will be satisfied that you are pursuing? Are you hoping to receive the perfect gift at Christmas? Will that give you the joy that you're longing for? I'm sure my four-year-old will be happy for a moment. I'm also sure that whatever he gets for Christmas will also be left and abandoned in some corner at some point. Because it won't satisfy. Or maybe you're a gift giver and you're looking forward to having your gift well received by the recipients. Will that satisfy you? Whatever your heart focuses on, whatever your heart fixates on, whether it's in the immediate short term or whether it's long term, whatever it is, if it's not God, if it's not Jesus, you will become dissatisfied. All other things fail. So my challenge for you too is to Look into yourself. Really examine your own motivations because it's hard. We don't always see. We don't always know why we're driven the way we're driven. Examine your heart. Confess your sins, your distractions, and set your heart on him. Let's pray. Father, there is no greater gift that could be imagined than the gift that you have freely given through Jesus Christ through his sacrifice, our salvation. If we truly understood, Father, the preciousness of that gift, I think our hearts would be focused on you more often, more regularly, more consistently. Lord, you know us, you created us, you know that we are weak, You know that we are easily distracted. So Father, help us. Help us to understand the 
the direction of our own hearts, our own souls. Help us to rein in our own imaginations and conform it to the truth that we see in your word today. That you are the one who satisfies. That you are the one who abundantly satisfies and who does so consistently. So Lord, help us. Help us today, throughout this week, to live only for you. As we go through all the activities that we go through, help us to do them loving and living for you. In Jesus' name we ask. We thank you for the result. Amen. Faithful, I admit I was <clears throat> distracted the first time we sang this because it was so similar to what we had just talked about. And 